0: It is another fantastically happy History Hump Day, and I'm your Happy History Hump Day host, Julian Rushbrook, here with a new episode of A History Most Queer. Yep, that is right. This is the spot to scratch that itch that all of you are having in your desire to know if there are any lesbian empresses, or intersex gods, maybe transgender priests, or perhaps a few asexual intellectuals. Yep, we discuss all things queer culture, history, and religion On this here podcast. This is the last episode that is in honor of Hispanic American Heritage Month. While it is the last, this is certainly not the least by any stretch. Today we will be looking at the life of a kick-ass lesbian reporter and activist, Jean Cordova. Jean was born in Bremerhaven, Germany on the 18th of July 1948. She was the second of 12 siblings. I mean, I feel for her mother. Now, her mother was an Irish American woman and her father was Mexican, hence how she made it to this month's set of episodes. Her family would move to California where she attended high school at Immaculate Heart of Mary Convent in Santa Barbara. It was while attending school with the nuns that she would come to realize her sexuality. I chose the convent because I knew I wasn't interested in the world of men and women, marriage, children. That lifestyle. I'm sure the fact that I fell in love with God at the age of seven and made a vow to dedicate my life to him was much informed by my strong Catholic parents teaching as well as my latent lesbianism. Her education would continue at California State University and later at the University of California at Los Angeles. She studied social welfare and would eventually obtain a master's degree from UCLA in 1972. In 1970, just prior to obtaining that master's degree, she would become heavily involved in the first lesbian publication, The Lesbian Tide. This newspaper would, for time, be run from a spare room in her home. Despite its rather humble roots, the branches of this publication would spread far and wide, with a readership that spanned the entire United States. Her work with various lesbian organizations and gay liberation movements is really difficult to quantify. It seems she was there for the founding of many LGBTQIA plus organizations, as well as working with the American Democratic Party on the political side of things. At her heart, feminist work was central she was coming of age in the 60s and 70s, so a great amount of changes were occurring as regards matters of sexual freedom. Women were making greater strides politically, economically, and educationally. One thing that seems to be only lightly touched on often when looking at this period, uh, if it's even looked at at all, is that these feminists' movements were not exclusively the domain of straight, cisgendered, white women. Lesbians and women of color were at the forefront of these movements. And here's a quote from her. I didn't want my lesbianism to be just a matter of sexuality. I felt it was more political than that, really, she would explain. This was, after all, just after the events of Stonewall. So, on a broader national scale, homosexuality would be declassified as a mental disorder in 1974, but the challenging of that status had begun in 1969. This period of time was crucial for laying the foundation of the queer movements that would follow, and as was stated before, Jean was there from the beginning. If we go back a bit for a second, in the late 1960s and very early 70s, she was a chapter president for the Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organization that deserves an episode in its own right. Suffice it to say, the Daughters of Belitis, along with the Madison Society, were early groups that challenged the illegality of homosexuality that began in the 1950s. Now, she had just got, gotten out of the Immaculate Heart High School and was already going full throttle into becoming a major mover and shaker in the queer liberation movement. Four major lesbian conferences can thank her for her organizing skills, including the West Coast Lesbian Conference and the National Lesbian Conference. Gay pride parades would also be organized with her at the nexus of these events. In her autobiography, When We Were Outlaws, she tells that at the time of the West Coast Conference, a pride march was planned that saw participants fly in from as far away as Hawaii and other states. At the West Coast Lesbian Conference, she was a very vocal ally to trans women. A group of trans-exclusive radical feminists, led by Robin Morgan, tried to block a trans woman who was a member of the Daughters of Belitis, Beth Elliott, from speaking. They had successfully blocked her from being a speaker the year prior, but it was now 1973 and Jean Cordova was having none of that. In the end, Beth Elliott was able to take the podium and speak. The efforts were in the goal of overturning the California state anti-sodomy laws. It seems that at the time, grown-ass, consenting adults needed a room full of white, straight, cisgender senators to tell them what they could and could not do with their bodies. It seems this battle keeps having to be waged even in 2023, Republican state legislator, John Verne Briggs from Orange County, California. This lovely gentleman would, even decades after his work in the California legislature, talk of a deep admiration for violently anti-queer activist Anita Bryant. He would later have a change of heart, even going, so far as to heavily criticize the Reagan administration for its lack of action in regards to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. So, I guess people change, which is a good thing. Going back to Anita Bryant, she would be involved in Prop 6 and other similar pieces of discrimination from Florida to Arkansas as well as Oklahoma. These were in an effort to fire educators who were gay or lesbian, and to also ban them from being hired in the first place. Gene Cordova would fight against these measures, as would Harvey Milk. If any of you has seen the 2008 biopic Milk, written by Dustin Lance Black and directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Sean Penn as the titular Harvey Milk, then this is the guy we're talking about. As a little aside, uh, the recently deceased Senator Dianne Feinstein worked with Harvey Milk when they served on the City Council of San Francisco. It would be she that discovered the murdered body of Harvey Milk, and thus act, this act of terrorism would help launch her career onto the national stage. So anyway, let's get back to Prop 6. It would not just be Democrats or queer activists that would oppose this ballot initiative. But so too would the former Republican governor, Ronald Reagan. It is a mixed bag with this guy. He did not mind gay men dying horribly, but thought it was too far banning them from teaching. Needless to say, the measure was defeated, thus protecting the jobs of educators that were already employed, as well as those yet to come. If you are a queer teacher in California today, you can thank Jean Cordova, Harvey Milk, and others for their efforts to educate the electorate about this hateful piece of legislation. She would meet her life partner, Lynn Harris Ballot, who was as much an activist as she herself. She was a feminist radio journalist whose father had been an anti-apartheid activist in South Africa who ended up turning to terrorism, unfortunately, uh, and ended up being executed for a bombing that he had carried out in 1964. As well as writing The Lesbian Tide, Jean would have her name in the byline of various other publications. The American Herald newspaper, the Los Angeles Free Press, The Guardian, as well as The Queer Magazine, The Advocate, and several others, all had her contribute over the years. With the 1980s now upon the world, and the backlash against the decades of progressive legislation that went back as far as the 1930s, Jean would again have herself involved politically, trying to help her community. She was instrumental in helping to found the Gay and Lesbian Caucus of the Democratic Party, as well as being a delegate to the party in New York City. Besides Reaganism, HIV-AIDS would help define the decade. Even though conservative elements had done their best to get teachers fired a few years before, the defeat of Prop 6 did not deter them. With AIDS now on the national stage, the epidemic acted as fuel to their fires of bigotry the convicted fraudster and conservative activist, Lyndon LaRouche, when not claiming to be targeted by a Jewish cabal, again, the anti-Semitism of these people, will it ever end, and brainwashed CIA operatives, and even an assassination attempt by, of all people, Queen Elizabeth II. Maybe she's been packing heat in that handbag the whole time. Anyway, he was working diligently to create... An organization called PANIC or Prevent AIDS Now Initiative Committee. Uh, This would also be known as Proposition 64 on the ballot in the state of California. So what was the panic all about in 1986? Well, it was basically a quarantine program. According to the wacko conspiracy theory ideas held by LaRouche and others who crafted this piece of legislation, people with HIV AIDS needed to be quarantined for the benefit of the rest of society. They claimed, with about as much evidence as is presented by your crazy aunt on Facebook when it comes to Jewish space lasers and extraterrestrial COVID vaccines, that HIV could be transmitted through the air as well as by casual contact, like just a handshake, and even insects could carry it. Yep, you needed to keep an eye out for Jiminy Cricket when you visited Disneyland and keep your distance. The ballot measure was brought about through fraud, although this was not the fraud that would send LaRouche to prison. As the political consultant to Panic, Stanley Dale, who would go to prison for this crime, collected a massive amount of signatures from people who were not residents of California, but then tried to pass them off as though they were. Funnily enough, the Catholic Church even opposed this legislation. And let's be honest, the track record for the church being on the side of queer issues is not exactly the best, at least historically speaking. Well, anyway... This 1986 ballot initiative was defeated. LaRouche and his buddies would make a few changes. Panic would now stand for Prevent AIDS Now in California. So just a different word in the C spot. They would reintroduce this as Proposition 69 in 1988. Thankfully, this sort of 69 was voted down by the Californian people. Mr. LaRouche would later go on to accuse the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention of criminal malfeasance for refusing to back panic's work. There are an awful lot of terrible similarities here to conspiracy-minded people regarding COVID-19 and all of the vitriol that was directed at the CDC in more contemporary times. It should come as no surprise that the CDC would not support initiatives that lacked any scientific research or verifiable facts. So yes, Jean Cordova was busy fighting all of this foolishness while working to try to bring the queer community together. She worked on and would publish the community-led Le- Yellow Pages in 1981 to 1999. This publication was the first LGBTQIA+ business directory. It's no doubt that these efforts helped to financially lift up queer business owners and educate the consumers about friendly and affirming companies. She would write three books. Sexism, It's a Nasty Affair in 1974. Kicking the Habit, a lesbian nun story in 1990, which, (laughs) I must say, this title has me instantly interested. And lastly... The previously mentioned when we were outlaws in 2011. That is to say nothing about her various contributions to anthologies over the decades. Needless to say, she was a prolific writer. At the age of 67, she would succumb to metastatic brain cancer and die at her home in Los Angeles on the 10th of January, 2016. Throughout her life, she received a tractor-trailer full of awards and commendations, from the Rainbow Key Award to being on numerous top women or top lesbian lists, and would be the keynote speaker at a variety of events over the years. Just before her death, she wrote a letter about dying to my lesbian communities. It would be published in a variety of queer publications all across the nation, and her her obituary would be published all over the world. Here is a few segments of the letter that I think best encapsulates her drive and soul. I mean, I think it's best to let her speak for herself. Many of us have gotten cancer and died. I write publicly to the women who have defined my life because I want to share this last journey as I've shared so much of my activist life with you. You gave me a life's cause. It's wonderful to have had a life's cause, freedom and dignity for lesbians. I believe that's what lesbian feminism is really about, sharing. We built a movement by telling each other our lives and thoughts about the way life should be. We cut against the grain and rethought almost everything, with just enough left undone for our daughters to reinvent themselves. Death should be a part of life, not hidden, not secret, something we never said out loud. From the age of 18 to 21, I painfully looked everywhere for a lesbian nation. On October 3rd, 1970, a day I celebrate as my political birthday, I found her in a small DOB, Daughters of Belitis meeting. That's when my life's work became clear. Shortly thereafter, I became a core organizer for two national lesbian conferences, one of which redirected my path to create the Lesbian Tide News Magazine, a national paper of record, as the historians say, for the lesbian feminist generation. And on it went for multiple decades of marches and later online organizing, this time intersectionally, to include all of me and my Latina identity. I want to say thank you to all of you who have loved another woman-identified woman, who have loved me, or have loved the lesbian nation. I wish I could still write about this kind of love more eloquently. Lesbians do have a special love for one another. I have felt it many times when women are with each other. I'm happy and content to have participated in it for most of my very full and happy life. Lest you be too sad, know that I have this kind of love not only with my family of choice, but with a straight arrow spouse with whom I have journeyed these last 26 years. Her last gift to the community was a donation of $2 million dollars to the Australia Lesbian Foundation for Justice, an organization that promotes philanthropy and awards grants to LGBTQIA plus people of color. Not only does this organization benefit people in the United States, but it's active all over the globe. Her legacy is really every queer person in the United States, and for that matter, the world. Her determination to defeat conservative and conspiracy theorist anti-gay legislation and to connect queer people together has ripple effects even today. Every summer Pride events draw crowds of hundreds to even thousands in cities and towns in all 50 states and in cities in countries from Israel to South Africa and Brazil. This ability to be visible is thanks to activists just like her. I recommend reading one of her books or even watching a documentary about her. uh, Jean Cordova, butches lies and feminism, a documentary that came out in 2017. Well, I think that that wraps up the life of Jean Cordova. If you like this podcast, rate us on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you find me chattering away about queer issues. And you can, if you didn't like this episode or if you really loved it, send me a message at ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com and come visit the Instagram page where you can also message us to see a few pictures of Jean Cordova as she's doing her thing through the decades. I hope that all of you have a lovely week and I will see every one of you again on your next History Hump Day. Bye-bye.